0: Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our regular Thursday morning time slot this week on May 10th. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger Katz, the New York Times. Good morning. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And Stephanie Armor of the Wall Street Journal. Good morning. It's all news this week, and there is plenty of it. Uh, Let's start with politics. We saw our second state unveil requested rates for individual insurance plans this week, this one from Maryland. And like Virginia last week, Maryland insurers are looking for hefty increases, as much as 91 percent for a Care First Broad Network PPO. Now, Maryland's final increases are likely to be a lot smaller than that, particularly if uh, the federal government gives the state permission to implement a reinsurance. Plan that the legislature passed and the governor signed. But what this did seem to touch off was a groundswell of finger pointing on Capitol Hill by Democrats blaming Republicans for messing up the market and Republicans blaming Democrats mostly for the fundamental shortcomings of the Affordable Care Act. Is this our future for the next three months as more states unveil in, uh, increased requests from insurers? Why, yes, it is.
1: <laughs> um, I, just normal um, caveats here, which are these are proposed rates. There is a process by which which state regulators and I guess theoretically the federal government review them and try to work with insurers, uh, that's going to take a couple of months. Usually the insurers come in with bigger requests than what is actually granted. So the numbers that we hear this week may not be reflected in the final rate increases. But that said, these are big requests. Um, The the granted increases are likely to be large. And we know around the country that insurers have been saying that this policy environment of no individual mandate for next year, of the possible introduction of these sort of competing, lightly regulated plans, association health plans, and short-term, limited-duration health plans are going to potentially pull some healthy customers out of the market. And you know these prices reflect that. And the question becomes, who's to blame? And what is the fix for it? Um, It is pretty clear that these big increases are coming as a result of policy changes that have been undertaken by the Trump administration and by the Republican Congress,
0: which- And and insurers are saying as much.
1: And insurers are saying as much. But I think also the Trump administration has worked quite hard and is working through the regulatory process to try to create some escape valves so that people who want to buy non-Obamacare insurance will have more options Those are options that are likely to be less expensive, although they will not be available to everyone and they won't cover as many things. And so I think it's really going to be this sort of messaging battle about uh, who has the better message. Is it blame the Republicans for driving up these premiums? Or is it, you know, look, we've finally given you some relief from Obamacare, which has always been expensive and escalating in its prices. And there's also this kind of rumbling among think tank people on the right and a couple of members of Congress, it seems, and Rick Santorum, the former senator from Pennsylvania, uh, who are trying to put together a new repeal and replace proposal. And I, my sense is that their goal is to have something relatively formal to unveil prior to the election to basically say, yes, you know, these rate increases are terrible, but we're going to solve it for you and you should elect us and give us another opportunity to do it.
2: Well, at the same time, I think this is giving ammunition to Democrats who are kind of pursuing this public option um, proposal in a number of states. I talked to some lawmakers um, and people running in Minnesota, for example, and they were saying that the, the rate increases sort of help um, support their goal to try and get more government involvement in healthcare as a way to um, have an option that people could turn to that would also allow them to have lower costs or more competitive costs. And this kind of fits with what Democrats overall are trying to do with their messaging is that it's not even just we need to fix the Affordable Care Act. It's increasingly we need to do something um, more significant when it comes to reform, such as public option. So I I think that also is driving some of that.
0: I noticed in a lot of the Democrat speeches this week and it was like somebody's shot off a starting gun and the Democrats did a bunch of press conferences saying, "It's look, it's all the Republicans fault." And the Republicans, you know, went to the the floor of the Senate and said, "No, it's all the Democrats fault." But but one of the things that the Democrats said that sort of stood out to me was that, you know, they're once again, blaming the insurance industry. It's like, oh, that that little honeymoon is over. Um, so the Democrats, you know, the, the big the big boogeyman of the private insurance industry, we should do more, um, mm-hmm. you know, with right. the, the public sector.
3: Well, I think that you've, you know, like you said, that was sort of a, a, a starting gun that went off. And, and you've seen the Democrats sort of take it a little bit more um, strongly and run with it versus the Republicans. I mean, Democrats were sort of leading off press conferences with this and um, and willing to kind of point the finger a little more strongly. I don't know um, that Republicans yet have figured out how to make the argument that we're going to bring down some people's premiums doing these other things. Um, for a long time, you know, we've all been obsessed with exactly how, what are the premiums and if, you know, the argument right now is that they're going up in Obamacare. It seems like it's hard for Republicans I don't think they've figured out yet quite how to make that argument, and that's why they're they're going. You, know, you see Heritage and other groups trying to to steer it a different way, and and maybe back to repeal and replace because maybe that's a little bit of an easier easier argument to make at the especially with voters at the polls who aren't quite. You know, I don't think voters are focused on health care in the same way um, as as they were before. And so maybe just a general message is okay.
0: Well, actually, there's a brand new uh, uh, Kaiser Kaiser tracking poll out Mm -hmm. this morning that shows that Democratic voters are a lot more interested in health care than Republican voters, which isn't a surprise. That's almost always true. But you can sort of see when when you when you see what you know lawmakers are saying you can kind of see that they're looking at the polls too that they know that that healthcare is sort of a, it's one of many I mean obviously the president and you know the, the the midterms are always a referendum on the president but underneath of that they're they're not going to all campaign on just Trump is terrible, you should vote Democratic, although that's probably the underlying theme. But they have to have some policy issues. And of those, health is, you know, right up there with, with jobs in the economy, as it usually is. As there's, not, there's not a huge change. Once you'll see
2: single-payer and public option talk, I think, heat up, yeah. especially as we get closer.
0: Although it was interesting this week, the, the few primaries that we've had, the, the more liberal Democrats actually didn't win. Um, that was something that Democrats were concerned about, that, you know, the way the Republicans are concerned, Concerned about having uh, candidates who are too far to the right to win mm-hmm. a general election, Democrats were concerned about having candidates who were too far to the left to win a general election. But in in the in the especially couple... in
2: states that went for Trump, that's there's really, right. really some divide about how to
0: like Ohio, this. Mm-hmm. yeah. So um, so one that... one
1: question that I keep asking myself as I think about this debate playing out, and, and this is true of both Republicans and Democrats, is are we in a kind of post-Obamacare debate about health care? Is Obamacare just the health care system and now we're going to talk about how to fix it and improve it? Or are we still talking about this piece of legislation that passed in 2010 and whether it's good or bad? And the Democrats seem largely to have moved on. You know, their message is about some of these uh, buy-ins and single-payer proposals and f- stabilization. And they're, I-, I feel like they're having an argument about the healthcare system we have now is not good enough. Let's. How can we improve it? How can we make something better? The Republicans, to me, feel a little bit more split about this. I think on the one hand, some of them um, just want to start over and talk about what is the healthcare system that we want to design uh, from where we are now. And I think others feel like they want to go back to this old playbook of saying we have to get rid of Obamacare. Obamacare is terrible. And I think that this sort of messaging difficulty that Anna's talking about, about the rates, sort of reflects that because the people who are used to going back to the Obamacare is terrible playbook, they can say, oh, these prices are going up. It's because Obamacare is terrible. These are Obamacare prices. Whereas I think other people really want to talk about like, no, we're going to do these other policies and there's going to be different options and we're going to have a more liberalized market and let's stop paying so much attention to the Obamacare piece of things.
0: Although it's it's interesting, the the Republicans this week, at least the ones who were talking about it, Lamar Alexander, the chairman of the Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, and Susan Collins, who played this rather pivotal role last year in a whole lot of things, are saying that, well, we could have fixed the problems that's causing these premiums to go up. But the Democrats walked away from the deal. Of course, the Republicans had put sort of a poison pill in it, which force the Democrats to, to walk away, but that that's kind of a – that's sort of where they were. It's like, you know, this, it's, this is not our fault because you wouldn't agree to our demands for this bipartisan bill. I think for the average voter in the midterm, some of this stuff is like two
1: in the weeds. You know, we can talk about it and, and people on the Hill are going to talk about, you know, who's agreed to and pulled away from this particular really wonky deal – but I think mostly what voters care about is that healthcare costs are too high, that they're having difficulty with their insurance company, that their drugs are too expensive. And I think the kinds of messages that we're going to see in campaigns and in campaign advertisements are going to be more focused around that. You may still see some like, let's get rid of Obamacare. It's terrible. But my guess is that the Democratic proposals are going to be more about like, we're just going to make healthcare more affordable for you. And I think that probably some of the Republican messaging will be similar. And the
2: Republicans also, are, I think, will really trumpet the fact that they did the individual mandate repeal. But I think they're also really going to focus on things they're doing with regards to opioids and drug prices. Like they're trying to get a positive message of action and you see that in terms of the Trump administration now and just recently with what they've been doing. So that's going to help give Republicans more of a message of accomplishment.
0: And this is where I get to point out that that the president is, as of this taping, scheduled to give his big drug price speech uh, Friday afternoon. So we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's, let's move on. Also on Congress's plate is a $15 billion budget rescissions package that includes $7 billion in cuts to the Children's Health Insurance Program, that one that we spent the last, oh, I don't know, nine months talking about. Uh, before we get into that, can someone explain what the rescissions process is? Margo? Well,
1: I was so delighted to learn about this bit of budget arcana that I did not know about before. So um, we learned a lot about reconciliation last year. Uh, so now we've learned about rescissions, which is this process that was started in the 1970s that allows the president to, after the budget is passed and after you're kind of through the part of the fiscal year, to say, um, Let's, let's, let's pull back some money that hasn't been spent yet that, that we could save. And this is another form of fast-track legislation where the president brings this proposal to Congress, and then Congress has an opportunity to vote on it. But they have to vote on it in a relatively small time window, and it is not subject to a Senate filibuster. So this vote has to happen up or down. And that it is going to happen relatively soon. So the package that the president has proposed... I think it doesn't have to happen if it happens. It has to happen. If it, real, I apologize. Right. If it happens, yeah. it has to happen relatively soon. They can, so, they can
0: ignore it, which has happened in the past. Sorry, that is true.
1: <laughs> um, so the president has asked for these cuts, uh, which include $7 billion in funds that were allocated for the Children's Health Insurance Plan. Um For various reasons, these are sort of contingency funds, rainy day funds. They are not dollars that are expected to be spent in the program. They're sort of leftover money. And so for this reason, the Congressional Budget Office says that if this rescission package passes and this money is taken out of the CHIP program, the Congressional Budget Office says it won't affect any spending in the program. It won't affect the insurance coverage of any children but advocates for the CHIP program are, of course, sort of screaming and yelling and jumping up and down and saying how terrible this is and that we need to have these contingency programs because we should care about what happens to children if there's an economic downturn, if there are other kinds of unintended Uh, problems that lead to them needing coverage. And of course, we have just come through this very (laughs) long period where the um, program's funding essentially expired because Congress didn't pass the reauthorization and the refunding of the program. And so they were spending down just these types of rainy day
0: funds. I know. I think that's the irony here is that there were, you know, there were states that were literally running out of money, and HHS was allocating every penny that they had um, to try to keep these programs going until Congress got around to to renewing the program, which was what five, six months later than it should have been. Um, so uh, the the idea that it's like, oh no, we won't, we don't need these contingency funds. I'm like but you just did need these contingency funds. My sense
1: is that this is essentially a favor that the president, that the White House is doing for certain conservative members of Congress who were upset about the omnibus spending bill. So, you know, they just- Because it was too big. They passed a really big uh, omnibus spending bill, like big spending increases on both defense and non-defense spending, just on the heels of this big sort of deficit busting tax cut. And so I think some of the more fiscally conservative members of Congress were upset. And so this is sort of a way to throw them the- to say, no, the White House does care about the deficit. We're trying to trim back some of this unnecessary spending, some of this, like, l- you know, sort of leftover money. Let's clean it up. But it is not at all clear to me whether this has enough votes to get through Congress, because that contingency of people who are upset about the omnibus is actually relatively small compared to the large majorities of Congress that voted for it.
2: Right. Also- and also, I think Democrats are really quickly jumping on this and as a way to kind of make Republicans look bad, which may potentially give them pause when it comes to bringing it up for a vote. Or voting. Give Republicans pause. Yes. Yeah, I know. Yes. I mean, just
0: the optics of taking money out of CHIP, which you just had this huge fight about. Um, even even if, as Margaret says, the Congressional Budget Office says this money is not technically, if you take it away, it's not technically going to deprive any child of insurance coverage. It's the um, optics. It's, yeah, yes, it's, perception. It's and and it is as we've just noted an election year, and the, and the midterm politicking has begun. So. Um, all right. Well, let us move from CHIP to Medicaid. Uh, the Trump administration on Monday formally told Kansas no, it could not impose lifetime limits on Medicaid benefits. Although the same day it told New Hampshire that it could impose a work requirement. And uh, where are we exactly with these Medicaid waivers? So do we do we know markedly more than we did? I don't a week think or this was ago? a huge
2: surprise. I mean, CMS administrator Seema Verma had said a number of times that they were looking at this in terms of lifetime limits. Um, Um, And so it was pretty abundantly clear that they were grappling with the legality of this. Um, It would have been a, a really big deal, I think, if they had approved it. It would be the first time you would have seen lifetime caps in Medicaid. Um, the fact that they didn't I think sends a message to other states that they will only go so far in and terms of or
0: other states I think that have lifetime limit um, and other states also it. have been
2: looking at it too, so I think it sends a pretty clear what's interesting to me is the message it sends about how far c m s is willing to go in terms of the kind of substantial significant reforms that could reduce enrollment in Medicaid, like work requirements are. Something they're willing to do, but I think legally or for other reasons, they're feeling it's too risky to do some of these other things. How that will play in things like drug testing, I don't know. Um, it'll be really interesting to watch because that kind of lets lets you know that this is that they're not rubber stamping everything that comes through.
3: I think the state had said too; they they sort of saw the writing on the wall a while ago. Yeah, and yeah. that they that they they knew this probably wasn't something they were going to be able to move forward with. Um, so I assume the other four or that are out there are probably thinking the same thing.
0: I was interested though the letter to Kansas from CMS saying, no you can't do this said, but there's lots of other ways that you can basically cut people off of their Medicaid like work requirements. So um I mean it was it was pretty blunt saying you can you can maybe achieve not quite this goal but something close to it if you want to.
3: So they don't want sort of a hard like you know, line on, you know, you only get it for three years and, and you have to get off, but well, the, certainly this, they're this, willing the to... The Medicaid
0: statute would, it would, I mean, it, it's already, there's already going to be lawsuits that are asking, you know, what is the, how do you, how do you further people's health care by cutting them off of Medicaid if they don't work 100 hours a month? Um, that That's a question that, that, a, that a judge is likely to have to answer, but it would be even harder when, you know, when the purpose of Medicaid is to provide health insurance to people, how limiting it if they're still eligible and they still need it is a furthering of the Medicaid statute's purpose.
2: I think the oral arguments in the Kentucky case on the Medicaid work requirements start in June. In June. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I believe that's the first case that's moving forward. So I think that will be fascinating to watch. Yeah, So
1: I just feel like as a former New Hampshire newspaper reporter, I just want to like say a couple of things about the Please. New Hampshire
2: Work Requirements
1: Waiver, which was approved. Not a surprise. You know, this was very much kind of in the mainstream of what CMS has said that they would approve. Um, but a couple of things that stood out to me about New Hampshire's waiver. One is that it's like a little tougher than some of the previous ones. So they're requiring people to work not 20 hours a week, but 30 hours a week. And... They are basically giving people a very small grace period. So if you work, say, 25 hours in a month, they will send you a letter and say you're out of compliance. And in the next month, you have to work your 30 hours plus the five that you missed the last month in order to maintain your Medicaid coverage. Uh, If not, you will lose it. And in order to get it back, you have to sort of make up lost hours. So this is like a pretty tough program uh, in the sense that it's a lot of hours and that there's like very little wiggle room for people who might have either difficulty getting hours. We know a lot of low-wage hourly workers often don't work on fixed schedules. There was a good report that came out uh, a couple weeks ago sort of looking at a lot of monthly variation in the number of hours that these people tend to work. Um, but also just life circumstances might change. You might get sick and miss a day of work or something like that. But also,
0: I mean, often your work hours aren't, you don't set them, your employer sets them. I mean, if they don't, mm -hmm. you know, even if you work at Starbucks, I mean, this is one of the issues. You know, they tell you when you're going to work and, you know, you can't say, well, if I don't have my 30 hours then I'm going to lose my Medicaid. And
1: 30 hours is also a little bit of a magic number because Obamacare has this employer mandate that says for, you know, employers over a certain size your workers who are who work 30 hours or more a week, you're supposed to provide them with health insurance. And so yeah. there's not a lot of evidence Those are for larger, employers, for larger employers. There's not a lot of evidence that employers are pushing people below 30 hours uh, in order to do this. But there are some rumors of it, and there certainly are some employers that are doing it. And so New Hampshire is kind of pushing people right up against that limit where maybe uh, the employer is going to have to take care of them, which is interesting. Um, the other thing about the New Hampshire waiver that I thought was interesting is they set up this really tough system, and then they they built in a lot of exceptions. And included in the exceptions was my favorite one that we have not seen in other states, which is that you can get an exception if you have experienced inclement weather, (laughs) which having lived in New Hampshire is a a relatively common common occurrence, (laughs) at least in the winter. And they also uh, want to allow local areas to make determinations about whether the kind of Economic climate is problematic. So there's at least the potential that in some part of the state, the local government might say, like, there just aren't enough jobs here. It's not reasonable to expect people to have work requirements. And so you could imagine that perhaps the work requirements might apply unevenly across the state.
0: Well, there's, a, there's a, actually mm-hmm. an op-ed in the New York Times this week about yeah. uh, Michigan's plan where they would exempt people in counties that have a certain threshold uh, unemployment rate. But the problem with that is that it would, they said it would end up applying unevenly because you have cities where there are largely minority populations where the unemployment rate is very high, but the overall county that that city is in is low. So if you're a rural, mostly white people you would be exempt from the work requirements but if you're in the, the in the, the sort of the cluster of minorities even though the uninsurance rate might be even higher because the overall county is not that high you would not be exempt and it would apply unevenly so stay tuned I may or may not be writing an article about this issue <laughs> <laughs> and there may or may not be a lawsuit I was just thinking yeah, yeah it's enough it's it's more uh, ammunition for the legal side yes all right well back to Capitol Hill um, we've seen a lot of hearings over the past a uh, couple of months and certainly a couple of years on the opioid abuse problem. But this week there was a House committee that had a particularly interesting hearing. They called up prescription drug distributors to grill them on their contribution to the problem. Stephanie, you wrote about the hearing. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it.
2: Um, Well, these are distributors that um, the committee alleges largely sent significant quantities of opioids to um, pharmacies in small towns in West Virginia. Like millions of pills. Yeah, like hundreds of pills per person. And so the committee members were really, um, saw this as a moment to bring the distributors into the public spotlight and ask them, you know, what are your, are are you complying with the drug enforcement agency in terms of reporting suspicious shipments? Um, Are you, what kind of systems do you have to make sure diversion doesn't occur? But what was really poignant to me about the hearing was at one point, um, one of the lawmakers asked each of the executives, you know, do you feel like the massive quantities that you shipped um, helped spur the opioid epidemic? And, Every one of these executives, except one, said no. Even though they had said that they, a number of them had said that they um, were sorry that so many of these shipments went there, and that was sort of to me the most poignant moment. Is it shows the tension between who is to blame and the finger pointing. The distributors say, distributors say, look, we didn't have the full data on why these were being prescribed, and the DEA is saying that. They're not to blame. And the drug manufacturers are saying that it's not them. The doctors are saying it's not them. But everyone has some culpability. And so to sort of see this brought out into the spotlight, was really interesting, and I know the distributors have really been on the defensive over this.
0: It reminded me of sort of the famous tobacco hearing in the 1990s that I was actually at, where mm-hmm. they had all the executives of the tobacco companies, and you know, under oath, it's like, you know, do you think that that uh, I think the question was, is nicotine addictive? Yeah. Um, and well, the fascinating thing was, and I am um, so unfortunately am
2: blanking on the individual. Um, but the, the one person who was saying that, yes, he felt like he was responsible, and he just answered every question that they were asking, yes, we take
0: responsibility, yes. The CEO of Miami Luke Yes,
2: it, that's who it was. And that was directly in opposition to the others, and it was just a really striking moment in the hearing. Well,
0: there have been some pretty amazing stories about some of these you know, yes. pharmacies in towns that have you know a population of 500 people. 400 people. people right, you're getting, getting you you know, hundreds million, of thousands so. of, of
3: pills. So. But I find it interesting that um, I do think that's, that's something Thing that's been really fascinating to see the committee focus on um, and to investigate. But at least this round of sort of what's going on with the opioid crisis, we haven't seen any of the pharmaceutical companies have to right. come up mm-hmm. and answer. Um, so you know, you have like Purdue Pharma or, or others that that make sort of the all of these um, these painkillers haven't had to face the same questions and That's they don't true. it doesn't look like they're going to. I mean, and I think it was um in the on the Senate side um Senator Sanders who brought it up in in a hearing and said well, we need to call these guys up here and there's just been no movement on that at all.
0: Hmm. Do we have any idea why? I mean, they've been up before. It's...
3: They've been up before. Um, that's correct. But sort of not in this more recent round of looking at the crisis and things like that. Um, maybe there's just fatigue and they don't feel like they'll get, the congressmen don't feel like they'll get anything out of them. Um, maybe they don't want to deal with trying to, like, they've done Martin Shkreli recently. <laughs> they've done EpiPen. Maybe they're just tired of drug companies. I don't know. <laughs> and this
2: investigation was really, that they've been focused on, has really been uh, looking at the the Distribution the shipments to the pharmacies, so it was sort of particular in this case to West Virginia. Um, so perhaps that was also why they went after these individuals. They're the ones they've been trying to seek data and information from. But you're right, the sort of the 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 factor that drove all this. The companies like Purdue, we haven't seen them recently.
0: Well, we have we we did see the see them in the in the early part of uh, not so much right. this decade the previous decade saying, right. really our our pills are not addictive. I kind of know that's not know true. that different. Now. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it is time to bring them back. Um, all right. Finally, this week, more than eight years after the Affordable Care Act passed, one of its most controversial rules finally took effect. Menu labeling for calories. Uh, most of us are now used to seeing calorie counts on menus because the big chains did it a number of years ago. In some cases, lo- localities have required it. But now smaller chains are supposed to be doing it, too. And boy, did this expose some fissures between pro and anti-regulation forces uh, FDA DA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has been citing studies suggesting that calorie counts will encourage consumers to make lower calorie choices. I can attest that is true for me, um, but I've seen other studies that suggest I'm not all that typical. Margot, you have looked at the data, have you not?
1: I have, and I would say overall, the evidence that providing shoppers at the restaurant with a calorie count and other nutritional information uh, The evidence that it changes what they buy is is pretty weak. Um, That doesn't mean that it's not a good idea anyway. You know, transparency is important. I think the FDA takes a lot of pride in the fact that we have uh, food nutrition labeling in the grocery store. And it seems to me as a consumer who does scrutinize that information, like it would be insane to go back to a time when that information was not easily obtained. Uh, But I think we should... As with so many um, public policies that are designed to try to improve the diets of Americans and, uh, you know, take aim at the obesity crisis, uh, we should just be a little bit skeptical that this is something that's going to have a huge public policy impact. It's been most studied in New York City, which has had uh, required all chain restaurants to have this menu labeling for quite a long time now. That was sort of the demonstration project that led to this being uh, made part of the Affordable Care Act. And the evidence in New York is just not very strong. It just doesn't really seem like there are some consumers who are really concerned about health and Uh, people like you maybe. And those people maybe are influenced, but the typical consumer really just isn't paying that much attention. And in some cases, like they're going to a fast food restaurant because they want a treat and they know that it's unhealthy and they're not necessarily going to choose, you know, the pastry at Starbucks that's 50 calories less or the, you know, burger at McDonald's that's 50 calories less. They were going there to get something kind of delicious and special and unhealthy, and they're just not going to be deterred by this menu information. But one argument that I have heard by proponents of menu labeling that I think is really interesting uh, and has been harder to study is what effect does the menu labeling have on the stores? So if you're Starbucks and everything that you offer is like 500 calories or more, which I I don't know about Starbucks menu. I just made that number up. Um, (laughs) That's pretty close. (laughs) You know, and suddenly you have to make that information public, you might – add some lower calorie options, or you might trim some calories off of a few things because it's sort of embarrassing for you not to have a healthy option. And so I think there is an argument, and it seems somewhat persuasive to me, that requiring this public disclosure may not change too much what individual people choose, but it might change the choices a little bit. And so if you are a person who's going into one of these stores looking for a healthier choice, it may increase the odds that there is one available for you. Well,
3: I also think this isn't a policy that is um, sort of in a vacuum. The FDA is trying to do other things as well um, to try and affect how people eat. It's sort of part of a whole plan that um, Scott Gottlieb put out there. And so you can go to a restaurant, you can see your calories. They're also trying to work on how do we define the word healthy and let companies put that on their labels um, and and other things like adding um, added sugar to the nutrition facts label so we can look and see like, oh, my goodness, my yogurt has 17 grams of sugar. I don't understand why that's even in there. Um, and so I think. Maybe if there were to be studies in the future, it'd be interesting to see how everything interacts, um, rather than just sort of this one policy does it work, this one policy does it work, um, and and those are the things I just mentioned besides the menu labeling. Those are ones that are FDA is currently working on and that are going to come out eventually, you know, I mean, in the next year. What's
1: interesting about the food labeling changes that FDA is making? So this is you know when you buy your yogurt at the grocery store and you look at the label, it says how many calories, how many nutrients, et cetera. It's almost like a graphics design challenge. So part of what they're doing is they're changing the information on the label. And the biggest change that they're making is they're telling you how much added sugar there is. So there's natural sugars that occur in foods, and there's added sugars where essentially sugar is an extra ingredient designed to boost flavor. And there is a view among many people in the nutrition community that added sugar is worse. So a yogurt, a plain yogurt, does include some sugar because lactose is a naturally occurring sugar in milk. But like a strawberry-flavored yogurt has all this added sugar that gives it its flavor. And so they're trying to break those things out. But
0: the other Even thing— Even though that, strawberries have their own. I mean, they, they, they're adding sugar in addition to adding the strawberries. Right, right. Yeah. So there's
1: the strawberries <laughs> are, have natural sugar. The milk has natural sugar. And then there's like the sugar that they're adding to make it delicious. Um, and yogurt can have quite a lot of yeah. added sugar. But the other thing that they're doing is they're just like making the t- total number of calories— in a much larger font than everything else on the label. And that's interesting to me. Like that's I'm sure that there's research that shows that, you know, people just kind of like see this sea of numbers. They don't know what to focus on. They don't really understand what it means. And they're like, let's just make total calories really big. So I think these kinds of like little engineering changes on the edge, it's gonna be interesting to see how they fine-tune it and whether it has a larger effect on what people buy and eat. But and there the was a menu, huge fight over it. Yeah, this. I was going to say with
2: the menu labeling, what I remember is a number of companies just talking about the cost. That was their argument, the cost, that they will have to you know, um, change their their um, boards where they put the calories frequently. That is really difficult for them to break it out. For example, a small pizza place that has many different types of pizza. And that was the argument that, that I was hearing. So it's really interesting to me to see that this has gone ahead despite some of that. Industry pushback. Oh, I, and also
1: I, I, a view about cooking, like that it's not reasonable to expect, you know, Applebee's to have the exact same number of calories in every grilled chicken salad that that it pulls off the line. That you want to allow cooks to have some discretion about how they're making things, and that having this level of standardization, you know, interferes with the artistry of cooking.
0: I'm I'm just amused by the the people who are all for transparency in healthcare prices, who are not for transparency in calories. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we have we have seen that. But. but I think I think you also saw a um when these so these the menu labeling went into effect on, on Monday and you saw a blog post from Scott golib saying like this is market friendly and patient friendly. So I think he was trying to get at yes. your, well, what they you were talking about. They did
2: delay it a
0: million
3: times. Oh time. I thought it was um, never
2: gonna happen. Yeah. 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 When was this first? Like how long it, I'm trying to remember. I think it was it...
3: twenty fifteen. Where they were supposed to on. I effect, thought it was before maybe? that, but you might be. Yeah, yeah it's it was. Been a and big, then it was pushed back every freeze. year. It's yeah. been several
0: years. Yeah, yeah, and and two administrations. All right. Well, I'm sure we will come back to this as it as it uh, as people complain and or like it. Um, now it is time for our extra credit segment. That is where each of us recommends a health story they read recently. They think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first this week, Margot? Sure. I wanted to recommend an article
1: in The New Yorker from Gia Tolentino called The Promise of Vaping and the Rise of Juul, which is, we've talked about Juul and about e-cigarettes generally on the podcast, but Juul is 60% of the e-cigarette market, which was a very surprising statistic to me. So this is- is it like brand new? It's relatively new, but it is the dominant product in this space. It's sort of the sleek- uh, it looks like a USB drive. Black. And, and yeah. well, there's different, I think there's different colors. Oh. Oh, so yeah. one, of, one of the things that this article reve- – so what I like about this uh-huh. article is it sort of talks about the possible public health pros and cons of these products, of e-cigarettes, that they s- certainly could become a healthier way for people who already smoke to continue to provide nicotine to them without all of the tar and other dangerous things that are in combustible cigarettes. Uh, But also that they sort of have this kind of cool aesthetic and there is a youth culture around this product, uh, you know, that potentially includes many people who would not have smoked traditional cigarettes and might never have smoked. And anyway, I, I think this piece sort of takes the whole thing quite seriously. It talks about the public health advantages and drawbacks, but it also, to me, was just like really interesting about the culture of this product. And one of the details that was included is that there was some small entrepreneur who made these stickers called Jewel Skins. That's like a sticker that's like the shape of the jewel that you can put on it to customize it however you want, make it a different color, have a little design on it, have your like name on case. it. Yeah, yeah. Like a phone case. Yeah, like a phone case, exactly. And this person who just like made these like stickers uh, now has made enough money on this product that he bought himself a Maybach car. That like this is a huge product and there is a huge culture around it. People want to customize them. People like use them together. They like to talk about them. There's like a lot of Instagram uh, and sort of social media pictures of them and that the cool culture of the jewel of the e-cigarette, is a totally different cool culture than the sort of traditional rugged, you know, Marlboro Mm -hmm. Man kind of cool culture of cigarettes that It's still nicotine. It still seems to be very attractive to youth, but that it's it's just a whole new cultural vernacular that we're all going to have to learn about. Awesome. (laughs) Anna. (laughs)
3: Um, This is from the New York Times by Reed Abelson. It's Women with Breast Cancer Delay Care When Faced with High Deductibles. Um, It was a fascinating look at women um, who have high deductible plans, and when they find out they have breast cancer or they think they might have breast cancer, and how long they delay going to seek treatment because of the cost that they're going to face. Um, so this, I, there was a study um, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology that showed they will, you know, on average, delay at chemotherapy by seven months. And for breast cancer, that's a very long time, um, and can you know, increase the the risk of your of your disease. And um, I think it's it's a good look at a at something. These high deductible plans are being used by employers to try and kind of get people to, I guess, buy into their insurance to have more um, more of a I guess a skin, a in, the skin game. in the game is the word I'm looking for. Thank you, um, and so that they will use it, you know, judiciously, and then also something we're seeing kind of a. a put forward a lot um, as an alternative to Obamacare plans because it might be something that at least up front for the premium um, is, is cheaper. And so this is sort of a, well, this is what happens on the other side of it um, when you have skin in the game and you're, you're not able to afford some really crucial care going forward and, and how that can um, really affect women who, who need chemotherapy earlier, sooner rather than later.
0: More, more about high deductibles.
2: Uh, Mine is a political story by um, Sarah Carlin Smith and Brianna Ailey on the unintended consequences of addressing the opioid crisis. I admit I also picked it because one of the elements um, has to do with access to opioid medication for people with pain and how it's making it more difficult. That's one of the things that they focus on. And I also did a story on this. Um, So it, it resonated with me largely because I think it's an issue that is not being talked about very much, which I um, was pleased to see it, it, it done in this way um, because it, it is an issue I think that's bubbling up more. You're seeing the American Medical Association um, kind of taking this on. You're also seeing, which was fascinating to me, um, was that last month all these... Uh, uh, patients who are dealing with chronic pain um on their own through organized through Facebook held rallies in like dozens of states now granted these were small rallies we're talking like 10 15 people in some cases um but it was totally organic and it just speaks to me about this whole issue of what are the unintended consequences? How is this crackdown on opioids in terms of limits on prescriptions affecting people with significant pain who feel like they have a legitimate need? And also what political pointed out, which I hadn't thought about, which is a really good point, is we're putting so much attention and energy on the opioid crisis that there is some concern that... Other types of addictions are not getting the same sort of treatment and funding for treatment. Um, anyways, it's really nicely done, and it's um, the five unintended consequences of addressing the opioid crisis.
0: Okay, uh, and mine is a story by my Kaiser Health News colleague Shafali Luthra. It's called "When Credit Scores Become Casualties of Healthcare." Kind of. <laughs> following on Anna's. Uh, it's about a 27-year-old uh, uh, young man in Colorado who had a serious horseback riding accident, something Margot and I can identify with. He was treated at an in-network hospital, but he had so many out-of-network doctors that he ended up with $3,000 in surprise bills that creditors threatened to report to credit agencies. Um, he so far appears to have dodged the problem, but apparently it's a problem that's getting more common as people face both high deductibles and copays in addition to unanticipated out-of-network bills that make it harder for them to keep their credit in good condition, um, much less their health. So just one more case where health care affects a lot more than physical health. And, you know, again, as these um, uh, surprise bills and uh, high deductibles proliferate, this is going to be an increasing problem of people who, you know, they may have a $5,000 deductible that they can't pay, and then there's going to be a ding to their credit rating. Um, So that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That will help other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Armor one At Anna Edney. At Sanger We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.